Welcome back to another edition of the Draft Board Podcast. I am your host, Jordan Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at JReedNFL. Again, that's at J-R-E-I-D-NFL. And we have a jam-packed show for you guys today. The NFL Scouting Combine is officially in the books. We're going to dive into the offensive side of the ball first. Then we'll get into the defensive side of the ball a little bit next week. Just because I didn't want to do a show after every single day because... I don't want to get or be a prisoner of the moment, and I want to sit back and reflect on exactly what happened, review some of the guys that performed really well or some that didn't perform so well, get to rewatch some of those guys, and give a fair assessment after we now have a chance to go back and watch the film on every single guy that did perform well or didn't perform so well. Untapped today, we're going to get into the offensive side of the combine, what the first two days consisted of. Then we'll get into an interview with Mark Schofield of InsideThePyline.com. Mark does a fantastic job evaluating quarterbacks. So we're going to discuss some of the quarterbacks and what exactly happened and what their future outlook may be. So moving right along, let's talk about the first day of the combine. It consisted of the specialists, the offensive line, and the running backs. The one offensive lineman that I thought shined above everyone else was Garrett Bradbury from NC State. We've seen his stock really soar since the end of the year. A guy that went from a 220-pound tight end to winning the Remington Award. And for those that don't know, the Remington Award is awarded to the top interior offensive lineman in the country during that given season. And Garrett Bradbury exemplified that. He was by far the best center throughout the country. And I think his stock has been unmatched by any other interior offensive lineman going into this process. And yes, I know there's been some other notable names throughout the country. Eric McCoy is another name that has come up. Jonah Williams, there's been some debate about him on if he's an interior offensive lineman. And we'll see what does end up happening with his stock. But I think he's more of a tackle right now. And I think he should be left at that left tackle spot as of right now. But just stand on subject with Garrett Bradbury. I thought he just looked completely fantastic at the combine he moved around really well even though he did slip in some spots he wasn't able to dig his cleats into the turf during some periods during drills but outside of that the Miriam match drill he was able to show his hip flexibility and his lateral agility which is something that he was known for at NC State on those reach blocks on those outside zone type of concepts on those runs to the exterior or to the perimeter so if he's able to land with the zone scheme oriented team I think Garrett Bradbury could be a plug and play type of option and he's starting to enter some day one discussions I think that may be a bit high for him and there's been some mock drafts out there that have him going 16 to the Carolina Panthers who have a need now that Ryan Khalil is retired Minnesota at 18 some people have him projected to go there because they're doing a little bit of shuffling with the offensive line we'll see what does happen with Pat Elfline there's been some other spots that have him pegged as well so we'll see what does happen with his draft stock but Garrett Bradbury is definitely a name to remember and we'll see what exactly happens with him going forward Andre Dillard was another name, the offensive tackle from Washington State. I thought he looked very good during drills, and this was the event that was tailor-made for him to shine. And what I mean by that is these drills show off their athleticism. He's going to run the fastest 40 amongst the group because that's just who he is. He's going to be very athletic. He's going to shine during these drills. Footwork is going to look awesome because that's what he exemplified at Washington State. offense that is very known to not have very favorable splits as opposed to the passing game to the running game they're going to have a lot of passing reps because Mike Leach's offense is tailor-made that way to where they have a lot of passing concepts 
So Andre Dillard had a lot of reps as a pass protector. He was by far the best pass protector of this group and in the country. And he stamped that part on his resume during the combine. He looked very light on his feet, very nimble. He was just moving around at a different speed than everybody else in this group. Eric McCoy, the center from Texas A&M, I thought he performed very well as well. And we're starting to see his stock improve each and every day because people are starting to dive into his film. Alabama going against Quentin Williams. He just competed his butt off that entire game. And he stuck in there and he hung tough. Quentin Williams is known just to be a terror to everyone throughout the entire country. And he's going to be a top five pick. Everyone knows that. But Eric McCoy really held his own when going against Quentin Williams. I think he's much more versatile than what Gary Bradbury has really come to show to this point. And he can play in either a gap scheme or a zone scheme. He also can transition to guard as well. He has a couple inches on Bradbury. He's a little bit heavier as well. So Eric McCoy is another name to keep an eye on in this interior offensive line group. Now flipping to the other side with disappointments. Greg Little, the tackle from Ole Miss, was by far the biggest disappointment of the evening. And I say that, and I don't want to pile on Greg Little because he came into Ole Miss as a highly decorated recruit, received a lot of praise, and he lived up to the hype. He has the genes. His father was a former draft pick of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers back in the late 80s. So he has that DNA and that mental makeup that you want to see from a potential prospect, but he just didn't look as athletic as he was built to be coming into the evening. He ran 5'3 plus. He jumped 25 on the vertical, and the vertical is set at 24 inches. He barely even hit the markers, and that's something that you don't want to see from a guy that's pegged to be so athletic as he was labeled to be, so I don't think Greg Little did much to help himself during this event, but he's going to have a chance at his pro day to redeem himself, and he's got some first-round steam, but I just didn't see that. His film is a very mixed bag, a Jekyll and Hyde type of player. He just needs to learn to finish plays. Yes, the athleticism does show throughout his film, but he's just so up and down, he's inconsistent, and that's something that you saw during the drills as well. He just didn't look smooth in his past sets, and I just want to see if he's able to redeem himself down the road, and I think there's going to be so many mixed reviews about Greg Little, and that's what you're seeing on a lot of big boards and a lot of mock drafts and rankings as well. He's gone as high as day one, as I alluded to earlier. And some people have him in the latter parts of day two and early into day three. So it's going to be interesting to see exactly how the NFL evaluates Greg Little. And I think they may be a bit higher on him than what social media is at this point. But it's going to be interesting to see where the NFL does end up drafting Greg Little. The second part of day one took place with the running backs. And this was a prime opportunity for a lot of the guys in this group to take advantage of the consensus top running back and Josh Jacobs being sidelined with a growing injury. So the David Montgomery's, the Devin Singletary's, Daryl Henderson's, all of these guys had a fantastic opportunity to take advantage of the spotlight with Jacobs being sidelined. And I thought some of them did that. David Montgomery performed marginally well. He ran in the low four sixes, which is what it was expected of him. And everyone likes to compare him to Kareem Hunt. And I don't think he's as good of a prospect as what Kareem Hunt was coming out because he just doesn't show that same type of burst on film. But I thought the 1B type of running backs performed really well in this group. And some of them, Miles Gaskin from Washington, Justice Hill from Oklahoma State is another notable name that performed extremely well, much better than expected. And Alex Barnes from Kansas State. And I thought those three guys were really the biggest three that really shined of the group. 
But the one that did stand out the most amongst the pack was Miles Sanders from Penn State. I thought he took advantage of a prime opportunity that presented itself. And that's exactly what he did at Penn State. A guy that committed and eventually signed with Penn State despite Saquon Barkley being there for a multiple number of years. But he still went in there level-headed. And he wanted to go in there and compete and earn his reps. And that's exactly what he did last year. He only got his chance in his final year as a starter. But he flourished. Over a 1,000 yards, 10-plus touchdowns. He took prime advantage of his opportunity. He looked very fluid going through the bags and catching the ball out of the backfield. That was another question that we had about Miles Sanders coming into the event, but he took prime advantage of it. He caught the ball very cleanly. He went through the bags very swiftly. Great knee bend going through the bags, looked very flexible. And that's something that you want to see out of these running backs. And I thought Miles Sanders was a, was a prime example of that. He's met with the Chicago Bears formally, some other teams as well. But I think his fit with the Bears is very good because Jordan Howard is reportedly on the trading block. We'll see what does happen with him as these rumors start to come out. And with him on the latter half of his days with the Bears, it seems like, Pairing Miles Sanders with Tariq Cohen, I think that would be a formidable duo going forward for the Bears. But Miles Sanders, Alex Barnes, David Montgomery, Miles Gasson, Justice Hill, these are just some of the prime examples of taking advantage of their opportunity. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, some disappointments were Elijah Holyfield, the running back from Georgia. I did not expect him to come out and run in the 4.7s and the 4.8 range. He just didn't show that on film. And he'll have a chance to redeem himself at his pro day like some of the other guys in this group. But he has a steep hill to climb if he wants to go now on day two or even the earlier portions of day three. So we'll see what does end up happening with Holyfield. And he has a steep hill to climb at this point. Devin Singletary is another name that I thought was very disappointing. And we all expected him to run slow. But in the four sixes, I really didn't see that on his tape not being that slow. And yes, he did lack the top end speed in the second gear. He really stays in neutral for the most part. He's more of a make you miss in space type of running back and being able to create when things are not very apparent. But I didn't think he would be as slow as he did run at the combine. And he's another guy that's going to have a chance to redeem himself at his pro day. And I think he needs to run in the four or five range to end up going in that third or fourth round. Otherwise, he's going to suffer a slip because there's going to be huge question marks about his top end speed and his burst. And he's going to need that on the next level because he doesn't, he's not able to operate as a receiving back and he showed that he just is not very comfortable catching the ball out of the backfield he was double catching even bobbling some of the balls when the quarterbacks were throwing it to him at the combine which is a huge concern with him and I'm a huge Singletary fan and I still am but he has some huge questions to answer going forward the second day of the NFL scouting combine and the last offensive portion of the event consisted of the quarterbacks, wide receivers, and tight ends. And I think NFL Network does a really good job with targeting exactly who they want on these certain days. And Saturday is seen as the headliner day of the event because it's the day that everybody wants to see. It's a quarterback-driven league, so everybody wants to see the quarterbacks throw to the wide receivers and the tight ends. Everyone knows that wide receivers are going to run really fast. So they make sure to put both of these events and both of these positions on Saturday. So it's on a mainstream stage that everybody can see. Dwayne Haskins, Drew Locke, and Daniel Jones did throw. Kyler Murray did choose to sit out the event just because he hasn't been training 
for the pro day. He put on some extra weight, measuring at 207 pounds and just over 5'10", which was really good for him. So he's obviously one of the biggest winners out of the quarterbacks. And I don't want to dive too deep into quarterbacks because me and Mark Schofield did a really good job on the interview with him a little bit later that you'll hear in going through some of these guys. So I want to focus on more of the wide receivers and the tight ends. And starting off with the tight ends, Noah Fant just looked completely different from everybody else on the field on Saturday. He was operating at a different level. His catch radius was much wider than his counterparts participating with him in the event and I just thought he did everything possible to stamp his status as a top 15 pick the NFL is absolutely going to be enamored with him because of how much of an ultimate chess piece he can be whether that's as an inline blocker which I think he's much better than given credit for he also can run routes from a three-point stance or he can flex out wide he can create mismatches against nickel defenders and linebackers whoever is matched up against him they're at a supreme disadvantage with no offense so I think he's going to end up being a top 15 pick. It wouldn't surprise me if he goes even higher than that. Cincinnati at 11 could definitely be a fit for him as they're searching for another tight end. Even though they do have multiple needs outside of that, that could be a fit for him. The Washington Redskins at 15 could be another option for him. Jordan Reed cannot stay healthy. He's not very dependable in that department. Vernon Davis is very long in the tube, and he's much older than what they're really accustomed to seeing from that position as well. So Noah Fant could be an option there. He could go to the Miami Dolphins at 13. And yes, I know they took Mike Gusecki last year, but imagine pairing both of those guys on the field together. I think that could be a dynamic duo and a fantastic pairing as well. So Keep an eye on Noah Fant. We'll see where he does end up going, but I think he's going to go much earlier than a lot of people are expecting. Whether that's top 10, top 15, we will see. TJ Hawkinson, his other counterpart, performed very well, and I thought Noah Fant's performance really overshadowed just how well he did perform. He's not going to be as fancy or as flashy as what Noah Fant is because that's just not his game. But when he was hitting the hand shields and showing off his block and he showed plenty of pop and plenty of fire in his feet to where he is very active, that's where he hangs his hat on. He's much more versatile than what Noah Fan is, but he caught the ball extremely well as well. So I think he's going to be just fine in that department. And the top 10 hype was a bit too rich for him. It's just a prisoner of the moment thing that happens every year leading up to the combine. We see a prospect. He has this tenacious clips on Twitter so everybody just immediately labels him as a top 10 pick so we fell prisoner to the moment once again and that's not a knock on TJ Hawkinson's stock but I just don't see a team taking him in the same realm as a Noah Fant just because he doesn't provide that same type of threat as a pass catcher and that's not to say he's a bad receiver or anything like that because he's definitely he's definitely not that he's very valuable as a receiver but he doesn't create the mismatches that a Noah Fant does create and most of his value does come in the run game department which will still make him a first round pick on some teams boards but it wouldn't surprise me if he does slip to the latter half of the first round and even into day two and he's not going to get out of day two let's just be honest about that because he is so valuable in the run game so another guy I thought performed really well was Irv Smith from Alabama and he came in a bit shorter than expected 6'2 242 pounds so he was a bit shorter and a bit lighter than what many were expecting but when it came to the route running portion like Fant he just looked different from everybody else he moved around very swiftly caught the ball very well and I love that Daniel Jeremiah was talking about this and he was breaking it down during the gauntlet drill where he was showing where the players were really freeze framing the ball looking it in having both of their eyes looking at the ball and just squeezing the fat 
of the ball. And that's exactly what Irv Smith was doing. He's known as having very soft hands, but he needs to become a more consistent blocker. And that's an area that he will improve on as time does go on. Josh Oliver from San Jose State, I thought was another player that performed very well. And a player that performed surprisingly well, and another guy that I need to go back on and watch some more film on, is Foster Moreau from LSU. And he was most notably known as a run blocker because, let's be honest, in that offense, that's really all they do. They don't incorporate the tight end a lot. It's a very heavy run-first oriented offense. And they're not very known for getting their tight ends involved much in the passing game. So Foster Moreau's ability was really hidden a bit in that offense. But just going down the list, some other names that really performed well as well. Dax Raymond is another name that performed really well. And it just goes to show you how deep this tight end class is as a whole. The receivers were the position that everybody wanted to see because it's really a clutter right now with all of these guys. They're all clumped together in the same tier, a lot of round two and round three grades. And everybody wanted to use this new data that was going to be presented at the combine to really differentiate all of these guys. And that's exactly why the combine is so valuable. You're able to differentiate with the new data that is presented and also the on-field drills. You get a you get a glimpse into exactly how these guys operate, what makes them tick, who's a natural hands catcher, who double catches or cradles the ball as opposed to sticking their hands out there and really squeezing the ball away from their frame. And that's exactly what you saw in this event. DK Metcalf put on an absolute show. Outside of the three cone, there is some questions about if he can change direction, just how good his change of direction skills are. But as far as running in a straight line and performing well in other facets of the combine, he put on an absolute show. Running a 4-3-3, putting up 27 reps on the bench. He was just fantastic throughout the event. And like I said, outside of the three cone, We're going to see at his pro day just how well he does run routes. That's always been a question about him, just how fluid he is in and out of his route breaks. He does struggle in that department in generating separation, and that's a fair question about him. There's going to be a lot of debates about DK Metcalf going forward and if he's just this huge consensus number one guy that he's built out to be right now. And there's some people that are on the opposite end of the fence that have other players ahead of him. Nikhil Harry is a guy that I think took prime advantage of an opportunity as well. Ended up running in the high 4-5 ranges, which is good for him because that's what he shows on film. But there is some questions about whether or not he can separate when within his routes. And he showed at the combine that he does have adequate enough speed in order to create that separation when out on the perimeter. So I think he might have he positioned himself into being a day one pick. I think he's another prospect that's going to be mixed reviews about him. There's going to be some people that have him in the second round, while others have him in the latter end of day one. And I think he's going to end up going in the first round because there's going to be a team out there that does need receiver help. The Colts at 26 come to mind. And the last Raiders pick at 27 is another pick that does come to mind that they could use on Nikhil Harry, and he would be an immediate upgrade for them out on the perimeter. One unnotable name coming to the event, or a guy that didn't really or didn't really garner a lot of hype coming into the event, was Miles Boykin from Notre Dame. And I thought he took prime advantage of his opportunity, measuring at 6'4", 220 pounds, put on an absolute show in Lucas Oil Stadium, running a 4.42 in the 40, jumping a 43.5 in the vertical, and a 140-inch broad jump which is very impressive for him. Now, he didn't put up the gaudy numbers that you typically see out of those Notre Dame type of receivers, but he is that big body type of guy that does play above the rim. So he's definitely one guy that you're going to have to go back and watch the film on, and he's probably positioned himself to be drafted much higher than what many people thought he would be 
coming into the event just because he wasn't a notable name. And that's what you see a lot of times. There's going to be there's going to be prospects that are overdrafted just because of how they performed at the combine. And a lot of coaches are going to think there's some secret traits inside of him that they can get out of them to show that potential in the future. A.J. Brown is another player that I thought performed really well. And I want to give kudos to the Ohio State receivers. Terry McLaurin, Paris Campbell, they ran 4-3. They looked very good in the drills. Natural hands catcher. Now, Paris Campbell is a bit of a more hands catcher than what McLaurin does show to be. He's more of a, more of a cradle type of catcher. Paris Campbell helped himself a lot running a 4-3, which he does show on film. More of a gadget type of player, but he did have over 1,000 yards receiving last year. Was the Buckeyes' leading receiver. Showed some downfield abilities as well, but an offense is going to have to tailor-make some plays to him, and they're going to have to manufacture some touches to Campbell, but that's just fine to some teams, whether that's in the third or the fourth round, which is where I do expect Campbell to be selected because he is the ultimate gadget type of weapon that you do give three to four touches a game, and you never know what he may do with those touches. He's really good with those manufactured touches and maximizing his ability on those touches as well. On the flip side, some losers of the event. Lil Jordan Humphrey from Texas, there was a lot of questions on if he should have even declared for the draft, and he just did not run well. Running in the four sevens just did not help his cause, and it just stamps what a lot of people were saying about him and that he should have just went back to Texas. Next year, he probably would have been seen as a day one or day two prospect who had had a chance to go back, put up some more prolific numbers because he was going to be a part of one of the more prolific dynamic duos in the country alongside Colin Johnson. And that offense was going to be very explosive. So his numbers were going to be even better than what they were last year. He's going to have a chance to develop his game as well because he is a former running back. He still shows some tendencies of being that as well. So he did not cash in on the opportunity. Riley Ridley was another extremely disappointing prospect because he was built out to be this fantastic route runner who had these uber-like traits that were very dominating, but he just not he just did not test very well. And I know everyone likes to say Calvin Ridley did not test well, but he did run fast. Riley really did not run fast. He just didn't show the same traits that he did show on film. He didn't catch the ball well in the gauntlet drill either. He was just very disappointing overall. Before we move on, here's a word from our sponsors. Life can be stressful, but getting life insurance shouldn't be. That's why there's Ethos. Ethos is a modern kind of life insurance that's super fast, incredibly affordable, and very uncomplicated. At GetEthos.com, there's no medical exams for policies covering under a million dollars, no hours of paperwork, or meetings with pushy representatives. It only takes 10 minutes to apply, and you can rest assured knowing you've taken steps to protect your family. And in most cases with Ethos, you can have that peace of mind for less than a cup of coffee a day with no hidden fees. Having life insurance can free you from stress. Getting life insurance shouldn't cause that. Discover how uncomplicated life insurance can be at Ethos. Get your free instant quote and submit your complete application in just minutes. Just go to ethos.com. That's E-T-H-O-S. Again, that's E-T-H-O-S. Getethos.com. I want to welcome in a very special guest, a guy I like to call the QB guru of Twitter, a guy that I look up to as well, formerly of Inside the Pylon, Locked On Patriots, and Pro Football Weekly. This has a laundry list of things that he has accomplished in his time as a writer. I want to welcome in Mark Schofield. Mark, how's everything going? Uh, Jordan, man, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, as I was saying before the show started, man, congrats on the new podcast. Certainly happy for you. You've been crushing it. Uh, great to hear that you're doing well and it's a pleasure to talk quarterbacks with you man looking forward to this one 
No problem. And you do a great job as well. And I got a chance to meet you down in Mobile. And, you know, we talk so much about quarterbacks. And, you know, being a former quarterback, this position is near and dear to my heart. And you're one of my go-to guys that I could just talk all day about this position. So one of the things that I like to do with every guest that comes on the podcast, I like to just let them tell their background story and how they got involved in writing and just the things that went behind your career to this point. So just tell us a little bit how you got involved in writing and how you got involved with quarterbacks. Well, um, basically my path to writing about football was a little bit different. You know, I was a practicing lawyer for 10 years here in the D.C. area and found out near the end of that 10-year period that as far as being a lawyer goes, I was much better talking and writing about football more than anything else. You know, like you, I played the position starting as a kid. I didn't play it at your level. Um, I was a D3 kid, you know, not a D1 type kid, um, but it was, you know, a position that I'd loved. You know, I was reading about playing quarterback when I was younger. And that's how I sort of taught myself how to play the position, you know, reading books and things like that. And now when I realized that a transition to being a writer made more sense for me, I figured, look, you know, I, I really wanted to write about what I knew. You know, if you want to learn about defensive ends, you know, there are people you can go to. If you want to learn about playing safety, there are guys that you can read about, guys that you can read from their work. As far as quarterbacks, though, I feel like that's something that I kind of know a little bit about. Maybe not everything. I'm always trying to learn. But at least I have a basis of knowledge there and a background. And so after 10 years of being a lawyer, I kind of met up with some people that I had known online. We started inside the pylon and then, you know, opportunities and doors opened for me thanks to the work that I was doing and great meeting great people online and on Twitter. And it kind of just grew from there. And so it, I will say it certainly beats going to an office and wearing a suit every day. I'll say that. <laughs> That's really awesome. So, of course, we're here to talk quarterbacks and we both have experience at the position, but it's really changed since we've been playing the position and we've seen how it's changed over the last decade. And it's become a position that's basically, I don't want to say sandlot football, but you have to have some type of innate ability to create off script. So what are some of the things that you have seen change in the position over the past decade or so? Yeah, I mean, Jordan, you know, you know this as well as anybody that it used to be. You know, what can you do from the pocket? What can you do, say, reading progressions and working full field from left to right and going to your check down and things like that? And we weren't so concerned with, you know, trying to create off structure and trying to create outside of the pocket. We were really looking at guys to make plays from the designs of the play, make plays from the pocket, not freelance so much. And then over the course of, say, the last, you know, eight to ten years, I'd say, the growth of sort of what we consider now to be college-style offenses, working their way up, say, from high school and into the college game and now into the pro game, has really changed how we look at the position. You know, now we ask quarterbacks at the NFL level, forget college, forget high school, at the NFL level to be athletic, to be able to create, to be able to think on their feet, to run sort of RPO-type designs and route concepts and play concepts that we used to say were things that you would see on Friday nights, things that we'd see on Saturday afternoons. But now as those players come up through the ranks, and more importantly, I think, some of those coaches that, you know, they grew up playing, you know, with these schemes, they then go on to start coaching in these schemes. And now, you know, they're moving themselves up into the NFL ranks. They're bringing these offenses into the National Football League. It's kind of a progression and a growth and a paradigm shift in offensive football that we haven't seen for a while. And part of that, I think, is economic based, you know, because now with the way that the CBA works, 
there's almost no bigger competitive advantage for a team than having a rookie quarterback be a competent rookie quarterback during that rookie deal. You know, look at Mitchell Trubisky, look at Jared Goff, look at, you know, Patrick Mahomes, look at Carson Wentz. If you can get that rookie quarterback to give you enough, you can build around him and make a run. So how do you make that rookie quarterback competent? You run stuff that he's been running in college, you know, and for a pro football the article recently that's in the draft magazine i talked to matt bowen who played safety for seven years and now he coaches high school football and he told me look you know if i were nfl offensive coordinator or offensive coach the first thing i would do is go talk to my quarterback my rookie quarterback's offensive coordinator in college even in high school and say look what was he running then and we got to get that stuff into our playbook and so that's i think the biggest sort of way that this game has changed is that because of the economics behind rookie deals particularly at the quarterback position we've got to get these guys on the field and ready to play day one and the best way to do that is to run the stuff that they were running in college and that's a perfect segue to the next thing that i wanted to ask you so i wanted to talk about kyler murray he seems to be the hottest debated quarterback right now and the cliff kingsbury dynamic with him in the arizona cardinals he has previous experience in that offense, but just talk about what are some of the unique strengths about him and what makes his game so unconventional? You can say, you know, you could take all the athletic stuff. You could take all of the ways that he can beat you with his legs and as an athlete, and you can sort of set that aside for a moment. I'll return to that in a second, Jordan. But, you know, I do want to make sure that people understand that when you watch Kyler Murray and when you study him as a quarterback, he's a better passer from the pocket that I think he's getting credit for. When you watch him in the confines of Lincoln Riley's offense, you see him running designs like mesh concept. You know, one of the things that Lincoln Riley loves to pair with those two crossers underneath is sort of a sit in a seam combination over the top of it where you've got usually the tight end or the H taking the top off the defense with that seam and then somebody else running that curl route over the top of those two mesh crossers. And he will read that play. He will read it versus man versus zone. He will make anticipation throws on that route design just as good, if not better, than most quarterbacks in this draft class. And so everybody's ready to focus on what Kyler Murray can can do outside of the pocket and off script but don't lose sight of what he can do between the tackles in the pocket on script as an anticipation thrower of the football and as a thrower of the football he is tremendous to all levels of the field one of the things i sort of knock him for is that sometimes he relies on touch too much but i think that's a good thing because so many times quarterbacks that have his type of art talent whether it's a josh allen or in this year's class a drew luck they sometimes rely on the fastball too much and you want to see them learn to how to take a little bit off and use trajectory and touch at times but he can do that almost to a fault he had to play i, I think it was against either kansas or kansas state i'm forgetting right now but it was tcu actually it was an rpo in the red zone and he had the slant he executed it perfectly at the mesh point but then he tried to use touch when he could have just drilled it in there and so there are times when i like to see him you know use the fastball a bit more because he has fantastic arm talent but i do think he's a tremendous passer of the football but as far as what he can do outside the pocket off script creating He's what I've described as the ultimate edge and angle eraser. You know, he had a touchdown run against Army where they were running an all-curls concept, and the two guys he was reading, one inside on the left, one inside on the right, were either covered or fell down, so he tucked it and ran. And two linebackers, and I think both safeties, had the angle on him, and he just erased it in a flash and outran everybody to the goal line. He has that ability that you just can't teach to create with his legs as an athlete and at times we've seen quarterbacks that they've come into the league and that hasn't stayed with them because you get to this level and you realize that these guys are just as fast as you or you can't outrun everybody 
But where Murray, I think, is a bit ahead of some of those other guys, whether it's an RG3 or Lamar Jackson, is that he's already shown the ability to protect himself. You know, people are worried about his size and about his frame. But one of the things that I've loved seeing from him is he will get into the open field and once guys start to close in, he'll slide. He'll duck out of bounds. He'll give up those additional two, three, four yards. He'll give up the chance to break a big one with a spin move or something like that by protecting himself. And he's going to need to do that at the NFL. All mobile quarterbacks, when they get to the National Football League, need to learn to protect themselves. I mean, one of the most recent examples of that was a guy that when I was studying him in college, I thought, look, I love that he's aggressive now, trying to lower the boom in the open field. But when he gets to the NFL, he's going to need to protect himself. And that was Carson Wentz. Now, he's not a small guy. He's a rather large human being. And how did he get hurt? putting his head down near the goal line to dive into the end zone on a run and play. And so the fact that Murray's already in a position where he knows how to take care of himself, I think speaks well to how he's going to be able to protect himself in the NFL and take care of himself. Because, you know, you can get hurt as a quarterback when you're running around, no matter how big or small you are. And so the fact that Murray's already shown that ability makes me think he's going to transition pretty well to the NFL. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you mentioned just how well he plays from the pocket because I think something that really gets lost in his game is what I like to call the Drew Brees and the Russell Wilson effect. So shorter stature type of guys, but they're able to create those throwing lanes on different types of planes so they don't throw to actual guys in space. They they just anticipate where they're going to be and they throw to certain spots. And that's something that Kyler Murray does really well. And that's something that I noted in the scouting report as well. And that's why I think he's going to be a uh, he has a really good chance to succeed in the NFL because he's able to slide within the pocket and develop those type of throwing lanes on different planes. So the next guy I want to move on to, I know we can talk about Kyler Murray all day, but the next guy I want to get to is Dwayne Haskins, a guy I like to say has a death by a thousand paper cuts type of approach. He picks and chooses when he takes his spot or when he takes his shots down the field, I should say, but like you mentioned with Kyler Murray, he's a guy that loves those shallow crossers, those mesh concepts, and some of those digs over the middle as well. And he's going to take what the defense gives him every single time. But Ryan Day and Urban Meyer did a really good job of scheming shots vertically, whether it was down the seam or just taking some shots outside as well. And he picks and chooses when he wants to take his shots down the field. But his accuracy is a bit touchy. So just shed some light on Dwayne Haskins and what you see with his game. One of the things that I love about watching Haskins, and I'm going to talk about two games in particular in a moment, but Haskins is one of those examples of why when you're studying quarterbacks, you can't begin your analysis of the player when the ball is snapped. You have to start it before. You have to start it pre-snap at the line of scrimmage. And Jordan, you know this as a former quarterback. Half of your job as a quarterback begins when you break the huddle. You know, because you're doing things like reading the defense and getting those pre-snap cues and adjusting people if you have to, changing the protection if you have to. And that's one of the areas where I think Haskins really stands out in this class because you watch him at the line of scrimmage in that pre-snap phase. He's adjusting protections. He's moving people around. And yes, sometimes it comes from the sideline, but not always. A lot of it seems to be perfectly on his shoulders, and he's willing to, and he's able to execute in that pre-snap phase, and that pays off a lot of times for him in that post-snap phase of the play, where he knows exactly what the defense has given him because he's diagnosed it pre-snap. They haven't changed it post-snap. They haven't spun the safeties or anything, and he can go out and he can beat you from the mental side of the game. And so I love his mental approach. You mentioned, you know, attacking the middle of the field on dig routes and things like that. He will make those throws with anticipation you know a lot of quarterbacks thrown between the hash marks thrown between the the numbers when they're in college they have to see it to throw it 
With Haskins, though, he'll release it before that dig route will clear that underneath linebacker. So he'll throw those routes. He'll throw people open over the middle of the field, which is something that him and Murray do it, and not a lot of other quarterbacks in this group are able to make those anticipation throws over the middle of the field, you know, between defenders and between zone spaces and things like that. You know, everybody can sort of see when a cornerback is playing off, you know, eight, ten yards over your X receiver and you throw that little boundary curl route or hitch route with the anticipation, sure, it looks nice. But when a guy can make those anticipation throws and throw people open in the middle of the field, that's what you have to do in the NFL. And so Murray, Haskins, both of those guys check that box. You mentioned the accuracy, and yeah, it's an issue. He might have some mechanical inconsistencies in the lower body to figure out and to clean up. I think he's shown development in that area. He looked pretty clean, pretty crisp with his footwork at the combine. So you do want to see him get a little bit better and more consistent, particularly down the field. He missed some opportunities in the vertical passing game, I think, at Ohio State where he did everything right pre-snap. I just loved the process and the mental approach, but then he just missed the throw. It's like if you just complete that last little step, man, this would be brilliant. But he just missed on some of those opportunities. You do want to see him clean up that up. You want to see him get a little bit better against pressure. That's one of the things that has given him fits. But he's gotten better at it over the course of his year at Ohio State. And I said I was going to you two games. If you get a chance and you haven't watched these games yet, watch him against Penn State. Watch him against Purdue. I love watching games where a quarterback has to face adversity. That Penn State game, it was somewhat early in the season. It was on the road, a Saturday night, national TV audience. And I remember watching that live, Jordan. I thought they were going to pull him at halftime because he was struggling. He was getting blitzed. He was missing throws wildly. But then he comes back. They come from behind and win, and he battled through that adversity. And you know this as a quarterback. Sometimes you're going to face that adversity. You're going to face those moments where you're wondering if the coach is going to come out and get you or if you go back to the sideline after this series and you're going to have to sit on the bench the rest of the game. It's happened to me. And so when you see a quarterback fight through that adversity and come out the other side, that checks that competitive toughness box. The other game I mentioned was Purdue. That was a game they were down by two scores through most of it. But you see him in the fourth quarter. It's a fourth and eight situation. They're down two scores. He's adjusting the call at the line of scrimmage. He's changing the protection. They zero blitz look pre-snap. He gets blitzed. Then they drop. They don't blitz him at all. They just drop him. He still throws a perfect dime on a post band-aid post route for a touchdown. It's those little things, that competitive toughness that I think Haskins has, and it's going to serve him well when he gets to the NFL. Yeah, and one one more question I did want to ask you about Haskins, and it's something that I noticed, and you shed some light on this a bit earlier. So he has this issue where he locks his front leg out, especially when he does face pressure. So you see him on his first initial read, but his shoulders and his eyes go to his second, third, and fourth option. But that front toe and his his front leg still lock out on that first option while his body is facing another direction. So those lower body mechanics and those flaws, do you think that's correctable? I think it's correctable for Haskins. What's interesting, and I think there's another quarterback in this class that I think we're going to get to, that it might not be as correctable for him. Um, But with Haskins, I think it's more of a mental thing than a physical thing. The other guy, I think it's more of a physical thing. But with Haskins, it reminds me a lot of Deshaun Kaiser. When he was coming out, there were times when you lock up that front leg and it sort of, and you know this, it sort of breaks that chain between the upper body and the lower body. It sort of almost breaks the momentum as you're trying to generate velocity on a throw. And it can impact ball placement as well. And so I think if he fixes that, which I do think is correctable because of you know, his size relative to the other guy we'll talk about, it's going to obviously improve his ball placement, improve his accuracy, might address some of those concerns that we, you and I both have. 
And I think it's going to help dial up the velocity a bit more. And so I think it is correctable, but it is something that he's going to have to work on. And it's a great point to bring up, Jordan. And then the last guy I want to get to of the big three quarterbacks in this class is Drew Locke, the quarterback from Missouri, a guy that I'm actually highly intrigued by, but he probably has the most flaws of the three because you see the big arm talent, but his footwork is a mess right now. And one of the things that you do notice about him is that he just naturally fades away from a lot of his throws. And I think it's just a bad habit that he eventually can break. But I just want to get your thoughts on just some of the flaws that you see in his game and just how much upside do you see with Drew Locke? Well, I, I think the sort of fadeaway is a great point, Jordan, and, and it's somewhat indicative of when you get to be a guy that's at the NFL Combine as a quarterback that might get drafted in the first round. You've obviously, for the most part, been among the best on the field while you were growing up, you know, and with Locke, his arm talent has always been able to bail him out of situations. I'm I'm sure we could look at his call, his high school tape and see instances of him just making ridiculous throws and not even having to step into them. And so that arm talent can sometimes be a double-edged sword. It can impact you from a decision-making standpoint. You look at Josh Allen and his rookie season at Buffalo. There were times when he needed to be much faster with his mind, but even though he was a bit late with the decision, his velocity and the way he can dial up RPMs on a throw – bailed him out it's similar with Locke. he sometimes he thinks he can just sort of get away with shoddy mechanics even on throws vertically in the deep passing game because of his arm talent which is very good and perhaps among the best in this group but that can only get you so far particularly when you're trying to transition to the nfl and particularly when you're trying to be more consistent over the middle of the field which is an area of his game that is still in progress you know his you know sophomore and junior year, they were basically running what was Baylor's offense. It was all go routes and smoke routes and slants and, and curls and comebacks. It was a boundary game. Now under Derek Dooley, they had to incorporate more stuff between the numbers, between the hash marks. And so that's a bit of a work in progress for him. But if you don't have the crisp footwork underneath, you don't have that solid base what you're throwing from. You can't generate enough torque on these throws. You're going to get into trouble. And so one of the good things that we saw from him down in Mobile and then this past week out in Indianapolis was the footwork seems to be getting better. Now, look, it's great, and it, we've seen it before with some quarterbacks where it looks perfect down at Mobile at the Senior Bowl. It looks great at the Combine and at the Pro Day. But we still want to see it when you're in live game action because sometimes that muscle memory takes over and you revert to what you've been doing for years. So until we see that from them in actual live game action, we'll have to sort of you know be a little bit hesitant to fully buy in on it. But that being said – Tremendous arm talent, obviously fits with a lot of a lot of teams might like to do in sort of a vertical passing game. I'm sure a guy like Bruce Arians is looking at Drew Locke and thinking, you know, if I'm wary on Jameis Winston and I get a chance to draft this kid, he fits with what we want to do. And so I think Locke will find himself hear his name called probably in the top 15, top 10. And I do think that there is a lot to like about his game. He does has that have that upside, but he's going to need to learn to rebuild those mechanics from the lower body up to make sure that he can have that consistent throw in base and not rely too much just on his right arm. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I think he does have the upside and it's apparent, but the arm strength is king in the NFL and teams are always going to feel like they have the secret recipe to mold their game around that. So it's going to be interesting to see exactly where Drew Locke does go. And I think he's still going to end up being a top 10 guy just because of that arm strength and the multiple traits that he does have. But enough about the big three. We didn't get a chance to get to Daniel Jones, but 
I want to talk about some deep sleeper quarterbacks that you have your eye on. So just tell us about a couple guys that you think are intriguing, whether that's in the mid to late rounds. Well, I think one guy that maybe isn't a sleeper anymore, and he probably shouldn't be, is Tyree Jackson from Buffalo. We saw him down in Mobile, and that was a wow moment whether it was the weigh-in or when you first saw him for the first time at the practice field itself. But he's every bit 6'7". You know, he's, you know, they weren't, you know, fudging that listed on the program, man. He's a big boy. But at the same time, you know, obviously you look at some of the testing drills that he had out in Indianapolis with, you know, the four, five, nine, forty, and the 36 and a half inch vertical and the 10 foot broad jump. He's an explosive athlete. And that showed up on tape. You go back two years on him, had a long touchdown run against Army where he showed you some lawn speed. Obviously that showed up out in Indianapolis, has an absolute cannon for an arm. I mean, you want to talk about a guy that sometimes is a little bit late with his decisions but still has the hammer to make it work? That's Tyree Jackson. You know, the issue with him, and this is the guy I was alluding to when we were talking about Haskins and that front leg locking up, you know, sometimes with taller quarterbacks, you do see that happen. It's just a biomechanical thing. They tend to overstride. He throws from a very wide base. So he's going to have to fix that front leg because similar to Haskins, he could improve the velocity and he can improve the accuracy if he sort of gets that lower stride beneath him. And so I think with the combine he had and what he did down in the senior bowl, he's probably played himself into probably, I'd say, late day two, maybe working his way towards the second round, uh, given some of what we've seen from him. Tremendous raw talent. Now, the flip side to that is we've always heard and we've always seen these sort of raw toolsy type quarterbacks. Sometimes they don't get a chance to fully develop you know, because of the practice rules and things like that in the NFL. But if you're a team that has established a quarterback but might need somebody a year or two from now, like, say, the Chargers, the Saints, Patriots, the Steelers, Tyree Jackson, I think, is a player you want to get your hands on. As far as we get sort of deeper into the draft, I think three names, four names that I'll put out there. I think Ryan Finley at NC State sort of has that, you know, long-term backup spot starter tag associated with him. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think he's a very smart, heady type player. You watch him against Syracuse. That was a game where they spun the safeties a ton. So he was doing a lot from the processing standpoint. I think he checked those boxes very well. I loved him in that game. When you saw him down in Mobile, I thought he threw the ball a bit better. It came out of his hands with a bit more zip than I expected to see. So that was nice. So he's a guy sort of in that day three range that might be interesting. I still like Brett Rippon. Didn't have the best combine, I don't think, but he's four-year starter, veteran-type passer, refined passer. In the mold of what we were talking about with Haskins, does a lot at the line of scrimmage. They put a ton on his shoulder from a processing standpoint, a pre-snap standpoint, making adjustments and things like that. So I like him. Jordan Tamu from Mississippi, another guy that maybe the offense didn't fit him best, but still made some nice throws down the field. And I think you can get him into an environment where you're, you get a chance to grow and develop with him. He's another interesting passer. And then finally, Easton Stick from North Dakota State. Didn't have the best week down at the Shrine game. I think he redeemed himself a bit at the Combine. Put in a tr- tremendous, tremendous three-cone. So we might see a, a Julian Edelman-type situation with him, particularly if Bill Belichick can get his hands on him. But as a passer, he throws some great stuff in the vertical game. Very good in terms of reading coverages and things like that. You wonder about the level of competition and who he was playing against. But if you're talking day three types, developmental passer types, you know he's a name to keep in mind as well. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned all those guys because I think this quarterback class is a little bit better 
than what yeah. it's given credit for. And yeah, we see it. We see it every year, and everybody's going to say it's not very good. It's not very good. But as, the closer we get to the draft, the more people gravitate towards it. So I'm glad you mentioned all of those guys. And before we get out of here, where can we find your work at? And do you have any upcoming articles or just some articles that you do want to shout out or anything? Oh, Jordan, for, first off, man, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Keep crushing it here with the pod. You're doing fantastic, fantastic work. Always great to catch up with you. As far as where people can find me, at Mark Schoolfield on Twitter. Um, places I write for, you know, articles I've got coming out. Uh, check out one I've got coming over at Pat's Pulpit talking about Josh Rosen and, and whether you know the Patriots might be interested in him. Um, doing some stuff this week over at Matt Waldman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio. Going to do some quarterback charting and things like that. But best way to find me is on Twitter, at Mark Schoolfield. Thanks as always, Mark. I'll make sure to definitely get you back on here the closer we get to the draft. Sounds fantastic, Jordan. Happy to come on anytime, talk some QBs with you, my friend. Really fun interview right there with Mark Schofield of InsideThePylon.com. And I always enjoy talking to Mark because the gift that Mark has is that he's able to simplify the game. He can tell you about the details and the nuances of everything that goes into the quarterback position and some other positions and the game in general. And that's the gift that he does have. He's able to break it down into his minor details and take you step by step of why quarterbacks or other positions are doing these certain things. And that's exactly what his articles entail as well. I highly encourage you to go follow Mark. And that's just the type of interviews that we want to bring on the Drive Board Podcast. But once again, I want to thank you guys for listening. Next week, we're going to have a free agency preview. Also, we're going to break down the defensive side of the combine and what exactly happened during both of those days as well. I want to dive into edge rushers, interior defensive linemen as well, the linebackers and the defensive backs. There's a lot of prospects that we have to get to in those areas as well. So I'm really looking forward to next week as well. But once again, I want to thank you listening for the draft board. I want to thank you for listening to the draft board podcast. My name is Jordan Reed. I am your host. Once again, follow me on Twitter at NFL. Again, that's at NFL. Make sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review.